0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 42 of High Telling Through History, a history podcast where two sisters get together, get high, and tell each other a story from history's vault of the weird and the wonderful.
1: I'm Laurel. Joined by Katie. I was really
0: having to focus on what that intro was going to be. (laughs) I felt like like I was a radio announcer. Yeah.
1: I was like, where am I going to go? Extra hard concentrating.
0: (laughs) Jeez. It's yeah. I'm already having a roller coaster of an evening,
1: <laughs> like
0: this, with this oil. Sorry, with
1: <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, oh, like mentally, <laughs> not, emotionally. Sorry, not roller. I shouldn't say roller
0: coaster because that implies that it's bad. It's not bad. I'm just really floating on this long stuff. for the
1: ride, man. Dang. <laughs> so I guess that answers what you're drinking tonight. You would. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's currently water, but oil, man. a tincture. How are you relaxing tonight?
1: Uh, with smart water and a little bit of allergy medicine, <laughs> nice hey. self care, yeah, just because that's why I'm a bit stuffy tonight. But my yeah. nose is all I think it's pretty sure it's allergies, but I do have a gummy that will be being partaken of halfway through this episode so that by the time it hits, this kid isn't trying to pay attention to too many things so that I'm all <laughs> present.
0: Not a bad plan.
1: And so, whatever you are
0: yourself partaking of this evening, tea or joining us in the joint, the smoke circle here, uh, welcome, welcome in. Katie, I do want to give chit chats annoying. I understand, but I got to tell you something. I wanted to give a little shout out to some special friends in the smoke circle up in Minneapolis, Steve and Smirky, who are listening up there. They're just lovely people and big
1: fans, big supporters of us. Here for the podcast, but on Instagram as well, too. We both obviously appreciate it, but I will also take my turn to to tell you from my very own lips. Thank you. (laughs) See,
0: that's what following us on Instagram gets you. You know, if you if you go on the Instagram and you reach out, you slide into some DMs in appropriate fashion, then you, too, can be a special friend of the smoke circle. Let me say rock, paper, scissor. Nope. Just kidding. Uh, Paper leaf grinder. Nope. Just kidding. Uh, Bottle leaf grinder ready bottle leaf grinder oh man (laughs) really sorry folks okay bottle leaf grinder shoot all right i'm first
1: you leafed my bottle
0: last week we had women of entertainment and athleticism with glow in the last show so I'm going to bring you more, more lady stories, but this time we're going to go today to lady of science, but the subject of our story was not a scientist. She wasn't a doctor or even in the field of science or medicine. She was a patient. She was just a regular person who died really young at the age of 31 due to a very aggressive case of cervical cancer. Oh, And in this weird twist of irony, it's actually the fatal aggressiveness that's phrase that can be used is the aggressiveness of those cancer cells that got her cells henrietta Lacks' cells named as quote immortal the tale of henrietta Lacks is often told as a legacy story since the bulk of it what usually gets told takes place after her death it's usually centered on how her cells have lived on helping to cure disease and save countless lives and while this is most definitely true henrietta you know she's a real Flesh and blood person before her remarkable cells received international attention. She was a real person before all this. She was playful. She's beautiful. She loved to dance. She's a wife, a mother. And we're going to talk about her first before we talk about her cells and her legacy. Henrietta Lacks was actually born as Loretta Pleasant in Roanoke, Virginia on August 1st, 1920. She was born into this really large family. She was the ninth of 10 children. Nine of 10.
1: That's tra- a lot of fucking kids. It's a lot of
0: kids. And <laughs> tragically, her mother passed away giving birth to that 10th child.
1: Ooh.
0: For oh, Henrietta's father, 10 kids is so many kids to handle on your own. So he packs up the family. He moves them two hours away to Clover, which is where most of the relatives lived. And yeah. then when he got there, everyone's so close that he divvies up the kids to make it more manageable for everyone to, to live kind of balances the load
1: so you're just kind of sitting there divvying out kids
0: <laughs> yeah you know uncles and aunts and grandparents and just being like okay a couple kids live here a couple kids live here and shit. yeah mm-hmm. just to balance the cost and everything because this is 1920s in a rural oh, area
1: wow. oh shit the great depression hasn't even hit mm-hmm.
0: yet we're close loretta ended up at her maternal grandfather tommy's house And he lived on a tobacco plantation. Her grandfather's house was actually the home for those who were formerly enslaved. That was the house that was on the plantation. And that's where he lived. Loretta lived in the home with her grandfather and her cousin, Daniel, who was nicknamed Day. It's a little tiny house, of course. So it doesn't have any electricity. It doesn't have water. So the kids, each morning, they would start the day really early in their shared room. They would start some gas for lanterns so they had light. And they would go haul the day's water back from the well. And they would next, then they'd do the chores around the farm and feed the animals and work the tobacco fields. And then when work was done, they would, they would play because they had all this space to play on and they would play together until their grandfather called them inside.
1: Could you even imagine having to do a shit ton of chores before a single cup of coffee? <laughs> Not a fucking chance. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> Yeah,
0: you have to go get the water for your coffee from the well.
1: I would keep a special cup close by (laughs) so that when I woke up in the morning, I could make coffee. I'm sorry, nothing would happen before coffee (laughs) o'clock. As time went on, Loretta
0: and Day started a relationship and then they had their first child together when Loretta was 14. They married when she turned 20 years old. It's not clear from my source material when Loretta changed her name to Henrietta, but I'm just going to say now that she's married... And her last name is Lax. I'm going to call okay. her Henrietta.
1: Now, who was Day again?
0: Her, it was her cousin Daniel. So she did marry her cousin. Oh boy, that's what if it, if that was the web that you were just trying to figure out.
1: That was yeah, exactly mm-hmm. it.
0: Yeah, all those years they worked the tobacco farm, always managing to scrape just enough money to get by with their crop. And then as the family grew, of course, the financial strain, lack of money, that's all becomes a problem. But they were so in love. So what they lacked in stuff and the material they made up for in abundance with love. They love each other so much. And as World War II breaks out, however, the need for steel grows exponentially. And with that, they need steel workers. So they decided it would be best to pack up and move to Baltimore so he could work in the steel mills and make more money, go where the the job and the money's at. And they did. The family lived together in Baltimore. They worked in the steel factory and Henrietta was taking care of the children and traveling back to Clover, Virginia to work the tobacco farm on the occasional weekend. So they are hustling.
1: Yeah, I'll say.
0: Henrietta, oh my gosh, she loves being a mom. She loves being a wife. She loves her kids so, so much. She's like, this is the best. I love being a mom. I love cooking for them. Everyone loves spaghetti, make great spaghetti. It's everyone's favorite. (laughs) Every time she went out, As busy as this woman was, she was always put together. She had her pleated shirt and skirt. And then when Day worked a day shift, the family would play card games and they would listen to the blues at night. And then if Day worked a night shift, Henrietta and her cousin, Sadie, would go out dancing after the children went to sleep. She had like red lipstick and she'd match her fingernails and toenails and they would dance. Sounds fun, ladies.
1: It how was a different time she, you could live she, your kids. Right. I was yeah, I mean, whatever, more power to you. But to be fair, you said they didn't have electricity, right? So they couldn't really have done gotten into too much trouble. Uh they live in Baltimore now. Oh yeah, that's true. Well then I could get in plenty of trouble. <laughs> Regardless. How old is she that she has her shit this much together? Because
0: Oh, well, I think she had to have her shit together pretty early. She had her first baby at 14. They got married at 20. So I'm assuming she's probably maybe early 20s. I'm
1: about to be 28 a (laughs) month from this day. And I still don't have my shit together. So I don't think anyone has
0: their shit together. It's fine. Not really. You know, Well,
1: Henrietta's here making me look real bad.
0: (laughs) The time. Plus, again, she's just on it and having to be very responsible very early. And but this seems like this is what her life was throughout her 20s. And it wasn't until after she had her fifth child at age 30 that things really begin to change dramatically and rapidly for Henrietta. So four months after the birth of her child, she returns to the same hospital, which is Johns Hopkins, due to abnormal vaginal bleeding. Now it's the 1950s. And that particular hospital was one of a few that treated Black patients, because at that time, segregation, not all hospitals would treat Black patients. And she knew something was wrong. Not only because of the bleeding, but she could actually feel if people are squeamish about medical stuff, maybe close your ear holes. She could feel a hard marble sized lump on her cervix. If she were to reach inside, she could like reach up to her cervix and be like, no, there's something on there.
1: You can reach your cervix with your hand. I guess. I have never tried. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see my face? I was like blown away. I was like, what?
0: That's possible i guess i don't know i'm not i'm not going around trying it because i don't think that's gonna be very comfortable but yeah she well she could that was the whole thing where she was like what is going on here and she could feel a marble-sized lump aside from the birth of her children henrietta didn't have any regular doctor's appointments she was like a lot of people were like i feel healthy and they were really poor she didn't have the money to go to the doctor and get checkups. so she's like i feel fine we're mean, OK. I
1: get it. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, <laughs> I it's... am also guilty.
1: Mm-hmm. Like, well, if it ain't
0: broke, don't fix it and don't spend the money. <laughs> that was where she was. And when she delivered her baby four months prior at that same hospital, as well as at her six-week postpartum exam, there was no lump that was noticed. No lump was there, which means that whatever it was that she can feel, it's growing very quickly. And doctors were really confused by the lump's appearance at first, because it didn't look like a traditional cancerous growth. It's described as really shiny and purple. It bled easily if it was touched or bothered in any way, which I guess is not how normal cancerous tissue works or looks like. So the doctors tested a sample and it came back as a malignant tumor. On February 6th, 1951, Henrietta went back to the hospital to then begin treatment. She signed a consent form to allow the Johns Hopkins staff to perform any operative procedures that they deem necessary. Oh boy. So it was consent for treatment. I'm going to make that clear. She's consenting to what they need to do to treat her. Before first treatment, doctors removed cells from the mass on her cervix and also from the surrounding healthy tissue for further testing. The samples were sent to researcher George Guy, who was studying cervical cancer cells at the time. Studying the cells was really challenging because it's really hard to keep them alive in tubes. Henrietta's healthy cells, you know how I said they got surrounding tissue as well, the healthy cells died after only a few days, which is unfortunate, yes, but is expected. That's what healthy tissue should do. The cancerous ones actually thrived. They doubled at this rate that's absolutely unheard of. They spread like cellular wildfire on whatever surface they were given to live on. Soon the labs got all these cells, like separate cell samples from Henrietta, because they're just multiplying like crazy. Meanwhile, Henrietta was beginning her treatments at the hospital and the treatments were a little messy. I mean, treating cancer is messy as one tries to kill very specific cells amongst normal healthy cells. But also to keep in mind, this is 1951, Medicine worked a yeah. little bit different then. Well, it's a really tough location too. Yeah. So Henrietta's treatment consisted of radium and radiation therapy. So any of you that have a vagina, this might get a little squirmy, but I do want to describe what's happening because I think it's really important to hear. So the doctor would dilate Henrietta's cervix and insert a radium-filled tube into it. And then from there, he sewed the tube into place and packed gauze into the vagina to keep the tube stable. And after that, Henrietta would lie quietly for two days while the radium took effect. When the two days were up, the tube and the gauze were removed and Henrietta was free to go. Whoa. I can't even like read that and think about that without clenching my knees a little bit. Because that's what she's doing for her treatments.
1: So that's their form of, so that's radiation of the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or what I they used were doing. To think for that sur- radiation surplus. and chemotherapy were the same thing? They're totally not. The chemotherapy mm-hmm. is the poison injection, which is essentially what it is. Like, I understand there's more to it, but that's <laughs> that one. Yeah. And then the radiation is separate. It's the radiation targeted in the area. For the longest time, I thought it was all the same shit. Totally not.
0: When the second round of treatments came back around again, she had to go every morning to Johns Hopkins where the doctor would shine radiation on Henrietta's abdomen. And in the afternoon, she'd walk to the home of her cousin, Margaret, and then she would spend time there because she just couldn't walk any further and she just needed the rest after getting the treatment. And after a few weeks of this, Henrietta's lower torso turns this really dark black color as if the skin's charred, that really dark, burned sort of skin. She also then learns that she can no longer have any more children. And she's furious. And she said that she would never had consented to treatment in the first place if she was told about any of the risks. Now, having been in treatment every day for a number of weeks, fatigue now is setting in. She can no longer walk to her cousin's house in the afternoon. And so she would take a cab. And then when she's there, the only thing she's able to do is once she gets in the door, she has to lay down on the couch right away and rest because she's just so weak. Now, in this point in time, she's feeling worse, and she's convinced that the cancer is spreading, but the doctor's records state at the time, quote, no evidence of recurrence return in one month. When Henrietta returns in a worse state, her urethra is almost completely blocked from a large mass. My God, She's in far more pain and insists the cancer is worse. She's like, no, this is definitely worse. I feel awful. And it was, of course, as we're hearing. Yeah. You know, it already, it had spread to her kidneys, her urethra, her uterus. And Henrietta at this point, she's, she's dying. And the doctors increase the radiation to try to make her a little more comfortable. But soon she's checked into the hospital to stay for good. As her kidneys shut down and the resulting toxins fill her body, she begins to need blood transfusions and lots of them. As the hospital's blood bank is being drained. Her friends and family are stepping up to donate blood because she's needing so many transfusions. Yeah. During this time, George Guy requests a second sample from Henrietta for cells to grow in the lab, which maybe now's not the right time, George. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is not the time that you need to go in and be like, oh, excuse me, I, uh, I need a second sample of your cells that I can grow in the lab. Back off, buddy.
1: I feel like some doctors are like that, though. Yeah. Considering their job, it's kind of ironic, but they have shit bedside manners.
0: Mm, mm -hmm. He did get his second sample, but they died almost immediately since they were exposed to all the toxins in her body that her kidneys were unable to filter. Henrietta Lacks passed away on October 4th, 1951. Her cells in George Guy's laboratory, the same ones that took her life, those ones have been thriving ever since. No one knew why Henrietta's cells grew at the rate that they did or why they didn't die like the samples from others. Using the first two letters from Henrietta's first and last name, the cells were renamed Hela cells, H-E-L-A. After Henrietta's death, the cells had multiplied into what I'm, I can only assume are just hundreds of these stored samples, even put in their laboratory. But George Guy, he's with all these samples, He began testing HeLa cells to see if they were susceptible to polio, and they were, which meant the polio researchers could use human HeLa cells instead of monkey cells, which were more expensive and then also from monkeys. They're not human cells. The invaluable polio vaccine was created from studying the HeLa cells. Wow. Yeah. And so in fact, actually, I would be so bold to go out there and say that there's probably not a single one of us listening that has not benefited from Henrietta's cells in some way, shape or form. And they are used extensively for research. They've been used to study appendicitis, how our bodies digest lactose, uh, mosquito mating, the negative cellular effects of working in sewer systems. Yeah. They've helped develop drugs and treatments for herpes, STDs, leukemia, hemophilia, Parkinson's, influenza all the vaccines including the covid-19 vaccine used her cells for development so wow. these they're used in all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of bioscience and
1: well especially when you hit that of- covid-19 vaccine like right there her cells have pretty much affected every person on the face of this earth well right yeah exactly except the people who live on islands and didn't get covid <laughs> you
0: know what i'm saying yeah They've even gone to space to test the effects of zero gravity on human cells. As of August, 2020, there are 17,000 patents that involve HeLa cells. They've been one of the biggest gifts to the medical field in the 20th century. So with all that good news, you'd think that there wouldn't be any downsides to the story. Like, why is there controversy around this story? In case you didn't know, there is some controversy.
1: They, Was her family compensated? Do you know anything of the story to begin with? No, I vaguely knew about it from the science standpoint. I didn't realize, like, the depth to which you were talking about. But no, I don't know any social bits of it. I just know that you told me she was black and this was before civil rights. So, you know, A plus B equals C, I'm assuming. And I'm also thinking of her laying in this hospital bed dying while they're using her cells, which, I mean... It's great that we have them, but also I'm thinking, well, it's kind of sad because this poor woman just wasted away, died, and now she had, what, five kids mm-hmm. and her husband? So it's kind of wondering what happened to them. Yeah.
0: Well, that's great that you bring that up because that's exactly what the controversy is around. It's about patient rights and family rights. And now the this is where the big story comes in, where people talk about Henrietta Lacks. They talk about the legacy story. And that's what this is about here. So you'd think that her family is set for life with their matriarch's legacy to medicine. But as I mentioned, one went home, but that's, that's exactly where things get dicey. Because when Henrietta signed those consent forms at Johns Hopkins, it was consent for treatment, as I mentioned. So I was like, by the way, when she's signing this, she's saying they can do what they need to for treatment. And it was not consent for samples.
1: So they took them illegally, technically.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And based on other things that she had said about how she felt with the radiation, she said, I never would have consented to treatment if I was, would have known the risks of it. So it sounds like yeah. she got a very
1: vague um, description of what, of what was going to Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: She might've been like, yeah, okay. That, that's what you're doing to treat me. Okay, sure. I'll sign, sign the papers. That's my speculation, but that's what it sounds like. In the early 1950s, there was much more gray area around patient rights. Now, today, we have HIPAA forms and all these things that we have to sign when we go to the doctors, but patient rights, privacy practices, you know, gaining consent, all these things were like, yeah, maybe we'll kind of do that. a gray area. And since then, Johns Hopkins has publicly acknowledged its wrongdoing with Henrietta and subsequently her family. But unfortunately, they didn't realize that until 2010, when the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot was published. Further controversy happened in 2013 when the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg, Germany, published the Gila genome without the consent of the Lacks family. And then, right, publishing that genome could have given very sensitive genetic information about her descendants, and that would have just been publicly out there for them. one that wanted to study that. So thankfully, after some outcry, the genome was removed, and now it's only used under the HeLa Genome Data Use Agreement. And then her family, on the other hand, didn't even know that HeLa cells existed until 1973 when researchers found out whose cells they were when they showed up at the door of Henrietta's children asking for blood samples to better study the HeLa cells.
1: Excuse me?
0: Yeah, ding dong. Hey, we're yeah. studying your mom's cells. We need some more blood samples. I'm sorry, excuse me? yes. That's what happened. And that's how they found out that these HeLa cells even existed. Wow. Naturally, Henrietta's children had a lot of questions, especially Deborah, who was Henrietta and Day's fifth child together. She was the youngest child. She never knew her mother because she died so soon after she was born. She never knew her mother. And here were some, some researchers who might be able to provide answers. They're talking about her mother. They seem that they might know something that she doesn't. One researcher just hands her a medical school book on genetics and said, Here, take this, read this. This is what we're doing. Well, oh, that's helpful. How? So, because of this lackadaisical attitude about you know, treating the family like human beings, naturally, when this author, Rebecca Sklut, who wrote The Immortal Cells of Henrietta Lacks, she's contacted the family. She's wanting to research Henrietta and she find out who she was as a person and find out more about the story. The family's like, mm, mm-hmm. they're really skeptical. And it actually took them a year before Deborah trusted Rebecca enough to let her into her life. But together they did some research to find the kind of person that Deborah's mother was beyond the cells. And, and it seems that it did help Deborah get some peace and some better understanding of her mother out of it. So I guess that was helpful. But as of... 2022, the families not directly received any financial compensation for the use of the HeLa cells. I say directly on purpose. I'll tell you why in just a second. But two members of the Lacks family are part of the U.S. National Institute of Health, the health group that grants permission to access and use those HeLa cells and that sequencing information. And in addition to this, there have been more laws created worldwide regarding the use of tissue samples, patient consent, privacy rights. I did find an article on nature.com from October, 2020, at the very end of the month, the Henrietta Lacks foundation announced a undisclosed six figure donation from the Howard Hughes medical Institute. And also that they would donate every time a new Gila sequence was uh, created or sold that they would make another donation every single time to the foundation, which is great. Their whole thing was like, we, this is our way of, trying to right the wrongs here, this is what we feel we can do. The foundation was founded by Rebecca Skloot in 2010 and the mission statement per their website, HenriettaLacksFoundation.org. We provide financial assistance to individuals and families, particularly within minority communities who are involved in historic research cases without their knowledge, consent, or benefit. This includes the cases of Henrietta Lacks and the HeLa cells, the Tuskegee syphilis studies, and the human radiation experiments, among others. The foundation offers those who have benefited from those contributions, including scientists, universities, corporations, and the general public, a way to show their appreciation to such research subjects and their families, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, you would think that kind of shit would be better advertised, but...
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's... uh, Henrietta Lacks is not, unfortunately, the only victim of this sort of medical treatment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to, I was trying to think of a, a better word for it, but yeah, of something like that, especially within a minority community. And so that's what the whole foundation is for is to helping those who were impacted by those things. And of course, that certainly makes everyone more aware of injustices that happen in the name of science and medicine. And though, as I said, it did prompt more of a change in patient privacy, consent, transparency between donors and researchers I can only imagine that the Lax family would like to continue to see change in a positive direction, not only for themselves, but again, others in, with similar situations that their foundation is for. Some of the family members have expressed pride in the massive humanitarian contribution of their mother or grandmother has given, albeit unknowingly. When Henrietta's son Carter attended a 2018 Stanford University-hosted discussion panel, he was asked by a pre-med student what can future scientists and physicians do to address the bioethical issues surrounding scientific progress? And Carter responded with, just keep in mind that these are human beings that you're dealing with. Try to talk to them in a way that they can understand and just know that they're human, which, right, you know, bedside manner, as you said. So as of August, 2022, it's been 102 years since Henrietta was born and her HeLa cells, Still continue to help the advance of science and medicine, but this is very much a a legacy story. Yes, but it's a living story as well. There is still litigation in and out of courts. There's a more recent um, biotech suit from the family, which is either ongoing or has just happened. Like, so yeah, so there's another there's another um, lawsuit that's that's happened again against a biotech company which has been the case, you know, since they found out in the 70s, there's been a lot of litigation. So if you go and Google Henrietta Lacks, it might be a different story from the time you look things up to when we made this. But that is a story of Henrietta Lacks. Wow. Wow.
1: It just, I wish it didn't, like you said, that's just really the only upsetting part is forgetting that these people are human beings and like, well, but don't you know, I really need cells to study this. And it's like, dude, I understand that, but I'm literally dying right now. Like, yeah. I need you to. Yeah. Well, that was a little bit, a good story to know, but also a little bit of a downer.
0: Yeah, I hope there's like some sort of justice at the end of it.
1: Okay, so my story tonight also centers around, I suppose, ladies in history-ish. Ooh, I was gonna say, Katie, are you doing a ladies story? Yes. Well, one one lady in her entire family, but yes. Okay. Katie's getting on the women's history train. Choo-choo. Sort of. Okay. We'll see when we mm. get into it. So our story begins tonight in the petty kingdoms of the Anglo-Saxon England. We've been here before. And a medieval Scotland. We return to a familiar face. Uh, the face of King Ethelstan of the Kingdom of England, perhaps you recall. Ethelstan was the one who united uh, the Kingdom of England. So we are, of course, talking Laurel about the British royal family. Okay, so now you see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> so after Ethelstan passed away, the Kingdom of England, which I mentioned briefly at the end of that episode, pretty much fell into disarray. There was no leader strong enough to keep it together, and parts of it. We're just starting getting like reconquered, as you'll recall. Northumbria, the weird bad ex girlfriend of the Vikings that they yep. constantly just, want back for some stupid just reason. Have her, yeah. Lush greens of Ireland, <laughs> stony rockiness of northern England. Let's just think about this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fertile place, I guess. Um, i I can think of no other reason. Maybe it has a nice coastline. Yeah. <laughs> so the parts of the kingdom are getting reconquered and they're splitting up and pretty much that whole kingdom of england that he worked so hard to get together just kind of fell apart anyway so yeah not quite a hundred years later probably closer to 80 years later in 1066 so england at this time was conquered by the normans now the normans came from what is today france what we would know as France, Mm -hmm. but the people were a mingling of Norse Vikings coming out of the North, indigenous West Franks, and the Franks were the original French, as we would call them, and the Gallo Romans. So these were more like Mm -hmm. settled, integrated Roman citizens is what I will call them. Okay, yep. So of that area. So the Normans are a mix of those people. That's the people that swept in, To conquer England. So after this, the kingdom of Wales also slowly comes under the control of the Anglo-Normans, they're called. So in the 13th century, so we're going to fast forward to the 1200s here. The original territory of Wales became a subordinate state to the English kingdom. So now Wales has been pulled into this whole conglomerate, right? (laughs) Uh Okay. More things are being taken over. You're going to see a prevailing theme here. It's going to be who's most in charge. Mm. It's just going to keep me here. Yeah. So the Norman Conquest, which was this invasion, uh, was led by the Duke of Normandy, otherwise known as William the Conqueror. Mm-hmm. Name that most people will know, sometimes known as William the Bastard. So William's whole deal was he invaded England after the death of Edward the Confessor, this is the last of the anglo-saxon kings so that guy was related to ethelstan okay right with edward the confessor dies the last king in the house of wessex so ethelstan's line dies there william the conqueror was some weird once removed nephew of edward like distantly related essentially So when he heard that Edward was sick and dying, he was like, this is my chance to take the throne Mm because he felt that he had a right to it. That's why he led the conquest over there in the first place. He just kind of bustled on over and took over, which was honestly, was a good time to do it. Because like I said, it was scattered and disarray anyway. So you Mm -hmm. really couldn't have picked a better time strategically. So the Normans, like I said, they're now called the Anglo-Normans because you have this whole mixing in of other people we're going to fast forward a little bit something called magna carta starts to be enacted it's a charter but it, uh, did you just say something called the magna carta yeah but not everybody knows what that is so oh, okay <laughs> uh, basically it so what it is it reduces the english monarchy's pa- political power basically mm-hmm. so they're less all prevailing and a little bit more like answerable to other members of like parliament and other such things Right now, but this is later, like we've left the 13th century. We're a lot closer to like 14, 1500s here. So at this point in history, we're going to skip ahead to the 1600s. But before we get there, I just want to make a segue because to me, as I think most people listening to this know, there's a lot that happens between Ireland, Scotland, England, Wales, and other surrounding territories. That this person's independent and then this person owns everybody, but this person is kind of forced to be under this person and all mm-hmm. that. It's There's a lot of that going on. So my question is, I'm listening to all this. I'm like, well, where the, when the hell does Braveheart take place? Well, I have your answer. Mm-hmm. It happens in the 14th century, somewhere between our lovely William invaded England. And then, so it would have been sometime during this Anglo-Norman rule. Mm-hmm. Because after that, we start getting into Parliament and things, getting a little bit more, uh, what would the word be? Probably modern. It'd be a little more modern to our understanding. So in 1603, the English and Scottish kingdoms were ruled by a single sovereign state. So for about, let's say, we'll be generous with about 40 years. Because then in 1649 to 1660, the tradition of the monarchy was broken by some that's called the Commonwealth of England. What it is, it's a political structure when England and Wales, alongside with Scotland and Ireland, later off in time, not right now, but for now, England and Wales, uh, they are governed as a republic. So kind of like the territory is recognized for being separate, but also it's a part of it. Mm, So go figure that one out because a lot of that happens here. I will do my best to explain it in a way that makes sense, but they also group things into giant clumps in history as well because there's so much going on. So this Commonwealth of England comes in. That's really a big change as far as how the country is going to start to run government. Okay. So after this Commonwealth is established, and that's from 1649 to 1660, These dates do matter. Hang in there. I know there's a lot of moving parts. (laughs) I was sitting there like back and forth between three sources like, wait, but this was happening with this, but this happened over here. And it was by this person who's related to these three people that three dates ago it mattered. I'm like, what the
0: fuck is going on? Yeah. God. All that royal history like that is just nuts It's a
1: lot. So I'm doing my best to like succinctly tell you about it. (laughs) So- The follows after this is the War of the Three Kingdoms. It's not one fucking war is the deal here. It's a series of conflicts that takes place between 1639 to 1651 in Scotland, England, and Ireland. At the time, they officially all lived under the same king, King Charles I. Again, this is what I said to you earlier— Yes, you're independent territories, but also you're, like, a part of us, though. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, right, yeah. So you're, like, free, but you're not. But, Mm -hmm. like, not that they were free, but, like, you're your own people, but you're not. Right. You know, you have to come to English rule. And as you see, now, don't get me wrong, Braveheart is, like, not necessarily a super accurate story at all, but it's one that a lot of people are familiar with Mm -hmm. that brings to light those conflicts that happen between these small countries, At this time, I think that's something that like a lot of Americans don't understand Mm, that there is a lot of conflict history built between those countries. Right. right? I think that movie does a good job of bringing that forth. So the War of the Three Kingdoms, again, it's a lot of separate conflicts in that time period. The wars were fought for independence, as you can imagine. Uh, the first English Civil War is being the most famous among these conflicts that make up the War of the Three Kingdoms. And it's just these continued like bats of trying to get away from each other, but then also being right next to each other. So good luck. Yeah. So after the Commonwealth era, where that change in Parliament started to happen, William the Third and his wife Mary the Second ruled as co-monarchs. Mm-hmm. How progressive. Ooh. Yeah, wow. So they ruled at a time that's what's been called the Glorious Revolution. Of course it is. The Glorious Revolution. Like how? uh, It just seems so extra. It really does. (laughs) Can We just agree that sometimes with British history, it's just a little extra. Yeah. Glorious Revolution. Oh, really? (laughs) We just had a normal revolution. American, but just a normal revolution. So whatever. (laughs) So during this time, the deposition... Of King James takes place. Laurel, have you ever read the Bible?
0: Yeah, King James isn't my favorite guy to deal with.
1: Well, I was just going to tell you that that's the same (laughs) guy.
0: Yeah, he's just generally problematic. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I do know. Yes, King James. Well, So
1: for the purposes of our stories, he is problematic.
0: Okay, perfect. So he just does it across the board.
1: Yeah, he is. But this is dealing with his deposition. So they're kicking him the fuck out because they didn't like him. Okay, great. But for those of you who want a point of reference, the King James version of the Bible starts with this guy. Why that's significant is because he's one of those few Roman Catholic guys. And you're going to see there's a lot of conflict with that between the separate countries. So that's King James. The Glorious Revolution deals with him getting kicked the fuck out (laughs) because he was creating problems, as you say, across the board for everybody. Oh, okay. Yeah. So William III was actually the ruler of the Dutch at the time. He had a shit ton of titles that, frankly, were all in a language I'm not sure I could manage to pronounce. So he was the ruler of the Dutch. Okay. And I mean the entirety of them as a territory. So already an important guy, I would say. Countries at his disposal. So he marries his lovely wife, Mary... And he becomes king of not only all these wonderful lands, but of England, Ireland, and Scotland. On top oh, of it all, yeah. So here we are, just gathering them away. It's like Pokemon; you got to catch them all, man. Gosh. So Mary the Second was the King James problematic King James. We'll call him. Uh, she was his niece, a little removed, but they were family. So it was her and her husband that took the throne after James's attempt to convert the kingdoms to Roman Catholicism led to a revolution, along other things. But that was one that really caused a big rift in countries because after that, his whole stint on trying to make everyone switch to Roman Catholicism, in 1689, the Bill of Rights of 1689... And the Scottish Claim of Right Act of sixteen eighty-nine. So the first one is the Bill of Rights is English, and obviously the Scottish Claim Right Act is Scottish. Pulled more power away from the monarchy than ever and excluded Roman Catholics from ever seceding to the throne again.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Right. Okay. Right. So it was a problem because they were like, no, fuck this, we're making a law. We disliked this guy so much. I was like, wow. holy shit. Mary and uh good old Bill. They called him King Billy, they said. Like, it was like a nickname to call oh. him King Billy. I was like, oh, that's rad. Okay. King Billy.
0: Right? We're so revolutionary. We co-rule and you can just call me Billy.
1: Just call me Billy. Don't,
0: you don't have to call me your majesty. That's so formal. Yeah, he's Billy's kind of, fine.
1: I mean, like, don't get me wrong. He did lead conquest and quite literally conquer because when he was off on military exploits, his wife was left to rule the kingdom.
0: Mm-hmm. and it said
1: she did so with intelligence and a firm guiding hand all not right. like a bad way but just that she took care of shit while he was gone mm-hmm. and when he got back he was like oh fuck yeah good job and took over again like <laughs> but it said like there were plenty of times where she would defer to her husband but he had no problem being like all right mary you're in charge and bouncing the fuck out to go you know oh, yeah. create war or something mm-hmm. right again a very progressive relationship for <laughs> the time So in 1707, that last, so that Bill of Rights happened in 1689. So here in 1707, the kingdoms of England and Scotland were merged to create the Kingdom of Great Britain.
0: It's official now.
1: It is. So that happened in 1707. Merely 70 years before America's bid for freedom. So in 1808, a full hundred years later... The Kingdom of Ireland joined to create the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Ireland, okay. Don't make that mistake.
0: Nope.
1: The last thing you do.
0: Yeah. Ireland is Ireland. Indeed. And Northern Ireland is Ireland.
1: (laughs) Yes. And Northern Ireland is also, incidentally, Ireland but North. (laughs) Yeah. So, with the British monarch ruling over the entire British Empire... At this point, it's largest point in which it was two, 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 two. It was biggest in the year 1921. It huh. covered over a quarter of the world's landmass. Jeez. Do you have a flag?
0: <laughs> yeah. Colonialism. There it is. Actually, oh, we yeah. were just watching. We we have a half hour left of it, but I'm going to recommend this. My friend Bob said, Laurel, you have to watch R on Netflix it has everything i was like okay i had never heard of it before and i start yeah. typing in r and then r and then r again it's a bollywood movie it oh it really does have everything not only it's like three something hours long so it's very oh, long we've, sure. we're, we've been watching it in little chunks but it is brilliant and why did i why did i bring that up oh because it was uh, pre-independence india And the British in that are just the worst. It's just a whole revolution film. But there's a, in the beginning, in one of the scenes, they're having all the English officers there and everything, or court and the governor or whatever. They're meeting, and in the back, there's this giant wall. It's a world map that has um, the Union Jack on whatever country it has colonized or claimed. And it's huge. It's like just this massive thing. All you see is just Union Jack. In the shape of different countries, yeah. And I was like, I'm like, look at that obnoxious ass map on the wall behind him. Christian,
1: she says to the Englishman, yeah,
0: yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. He, He he was mad about the the movie too mad at the English, I should say. Everyone will be. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. But yes, you're right. The huge amount of land. There's a lot of land
1: being covered. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, we said that they were the greatest in terms of size. I mean, the greatest um, amount of land mass.
1: Next to next to.
0: (laughs) No, the Mongolian empire was the largest contiguous empire. Remember?
1: Listen, the Mongolians would have had a bigger landmass. They would have had been more contiguous if they hadn't have had political issues and had to pull out of Poland, okay? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Laurel in the editing room. I just want to make a little correction here. It's actually the Mongol Empire. Yes, it's the Mongol Empire. We just lost our minds and said Mongolian a bunch of times. But it was the Mongol Empire, which was the largest contiguous, which means all connecting, all the borders were shared. Largest contiguous empire in history, whereas the British Empire was the largest based on landmass. Just want to make that little clarification there. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll resume.
1: So yes, huge landmass. All of this is ruled under by one British monarch. So the Balfour Declaration of 1926 recognized that countries held under the empire were self-governing countries. Mm. Now I know that doesn't sound like a whole lot. But you have to remember that this is traditionally countries, colonies, territories, Union Jackies that were pasted over on the map. You know, you were under British rule. You were expected to not only pay taxes and stuff to them, but also like do as they said. Mm-hmm. So to become a self-governing body and country is a really big deal. Yeah. When was this again? 1926. Okay. Yeah, it's... The dates, you're like, whoa, that was real recent. Like, I was born within the same century. Like, that's obviously, as you tell by our date here, there's a lot of that coming. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so with the arrival of World War II, the vast majority of colonies and territories at this point are becoming independent. So, independent states as well as self-governing. Because
0: mm-hmm. that okay. doesn't
1: necessarily mean independence. It means you can be in charge of you, but you're still, I'm still in charge of you. Right. So, with George the Sixth and his successor Elizabeth the yep. Second and Charles the Third, they adopted the title of the head of the Commonwealth of England. Mm-hmm. So different title. So that was his family that started that. So George is the first one in this line. Yeah, I suppose that doesn't really matter. But if you were wondering, this title of the Commonwealth includes fourteen other independent sovereign nations. They, on paper and officially and respectfully, acknowledge one monarch, but they're still considered, like, they don't have to be there, if that makes sense, under this title Mm. of Commonwealth. They could choose to leave if they wanted to. Does that make sense? Okay. A lot of this stuff is, like, strange because you have things that, like are sort of part of the kingdom, but not really. And it's like, well, we won't charge them taxes and they have their own title and everything, but if they needed us, we'd come to their aid. Hmm. It's just a whole lot of that. So today as it stands, it's a commonwealth agreement between these other independent sovereign nations as well as England. Oh, okay. That's kind of how it's set up right now. So the current royal family traces lineage all the way back to William the Conqueror. So still a part of the line, very distant because there was a whole Changeover in the middle, mm-hmm. as far as like within the family, but still all the way back to him, part of that Anglo-Norman line. Ethelstan's line ended with the death of the House of Wessex. House of Wessex precedes today. They are currently known as as the House of Windsor. That title was officially given to them. I think it was by George, so Elizabeth's dad. Yeah, dad or grandpa. It's dad, right? Yeah. yeah. I literally sat and stared at so many family trees. I was like, how does anybody keep track of this? (laughs) Royal family that we see today, that's the House of Windsor. Headed by, you know it, you've guessed it, King Charles III, after the death of his mother, late monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, on September 8th of 2022. So I just wanted to Mm. run through that one because she did just pass away. Two, it fit really nicely into my whole England and Ireland and <laughs> all of that. And I was like, whoa. And it was funny. It went right to William the Conqueror. I'll still probably delve in on a couple of big guys from within that timeline I just laid out. Okay. But I wanted to kind of go into how the royal family got to where they got today because I didn't know half of that shit. And I was like, whoa.
0: Yeah. No, <laughs> like that I was said, really interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and. And I think a lot of people who maybe are not English, or maybe even people who are English, maybe don't know all of that. Like you said, there's a change between the House of Wessex and Windsor and all that.
0: Yeah, there's a, like some different changes in the house. If you see the big tree, you know, if everyone yeah. all linked together because they are, but yeah, there's different sections that are marked with different last names. You know, the was it plantagenets and or something like that. And then the. In there and yeah. there. Yeah, I don't really know that much of it because it gets confusing after a while.
1: There's a lot of years between the lines is the thing. So then it gets hard to remember. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah. But I wanted to run through that because she just recently passed away. And I just wanted to spotlight a little bit on um, history that we don't know. And I don't think that's something that most people do know.
0: It's really interesting. Yeah, that was good, Katie. Thank you. And yeah, there's a hopefully some good takeaways tonight between Henrietta Lacks and very scientific, or medicine-based, uh, different sort of story. And then long ancient line of the current royal family yeah. and passing of Queen Elizabeth II. It's
1: a very teachable uh, episode tonight. Like, let's sit and learn about things, children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, learning
0: stuff. So that was episode 42. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Always a pleasure hanging out with you and look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, get money, get high, give love, and
1: do you have a flag? <laughs> Bye. Good night.